We will continue on David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But before that, let's pray for our children. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Father God, we lift up the children to you, Father God. They're your children, Father God. And it's your son that taught us, such is the kingdom of God. It's for the children, Father. We ask you to bless them, bless Amma, Camille, as they teach and encourage and mentor the children today, Father God, in a godly fashion. And I pray, Father God, that you touch their little minds and hearts and spirits, God. Let them keep their innocence, Father God. Uh, renew their minds, strengthen their minds. Let them grow up in, 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 in all the wisdom of God. Father God, we truly ask that you impart into these children the fear of the Lord. Amen. And Father God, that they obey their parents, Father God, which is the beginning of living by faith, Father God. And then that joyous day will come where they will see Christ for themselves, Father. So in the interim, Father God, we wait upon you to touch the children's hearts, be their protector, be their great shield in this wicked world we ex in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Second Samuel. I am actually, you might not notice, preaching on Psalm 51. I'll get there eventually. But I did want to pick out some of the backdrop of the whole story. I could have easily extracted Psalm 51 and spoke on it, but I figured I'd take some time to develop the background and just to see how important it is. Uh, I will read chapter 11, and then we'll go through it again. David's great fall. Do we have verse 1 up there? Okay. David's great fall. The unthinkable happens. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Ramah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her, and she came in, and he lay with her. Now she was she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went down to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. 
And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tabiz? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab has sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Job, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to the house, and she became his wife and born him a son. But the thing that David did, had done, displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Father, like always, we come before you humbly, Lord, and we ask you to open up our heart and mind to understand the scriptures, Father God. How does this story apply to us, Father God? How can it warn us, Father God? What can we learn about it, Father God? Give us insight, understanding, Father God. And Lord, let us take great strength always and strengthen our own heart away from the wiles of our wicked temptations, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Like I said, our goal tonight is to look at Psalm 51. Eventually I'll get there. And David's great cry to God from his heart to create in him a clean heart. You have to remember, David was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. God loved him. He cries out to restore a steadfast spirit so he once again can enjoy the joy of his salvation. From our story tonight, we see the fall of a great man. It's pretty horrific when you understand scripture and you read scripture and get to this part of the scripture and this great man's life, David, and all his accomplishments. He's, he's, he's the all-star of the Old Testament. And he comes to this devastating blow in his own life. It's brutal. And I pray to everybody read Psalm 51 and understand how far this man fell. And it's a cautionary tale to all Christians that even though we love God, David loved God, we better be on our guard all the time. I'm telling you that right now. This happened on an innocent day. The last thing David ever was going to think about was he was going to kill one of his best friends. Uriah was a friend of David. And he ended up killing him. We have to be careful. This is a soul that once knew God face to face. And now he finds himself lost and confused, dumbfounded by his own actions. 
But to really get behind the cry of David's heart, we need to unfortunately relive the crime scene of which we just read. And to follow our text from the seemingly innocent staying at home work day, David didn't want to go and fight with his soldiers, so he stayed home and the unthinkable happened. Last week I introduced a major theme that runs throughout the scriptures, it's called the seed, and I I spent a little time on it, and that's about God's promise to Adam and Eve that one day a human being was going to come from amongst Eve's children and conquer Satan. That runs throughout the whole scripture, and this story almost throws a monkey wrench into that. David was a big part of that promise, and basically David has just blown it. Adam and Eve blew it, but God had another plan. Noah blew it, Moses blew it, Abraham, everybody blows it. Even the great David blew it. But the reason it continues is because Jesus didn't. We all blow something in our life, even as Christians. But guess who holds it all together? Jesus holds it all together. That is really, really good news. Uh, So, and like I said, that's a picture of Jesus defeating Satan at the cross. David was a major, major player in this understanding that the promise and the stipulation of David's own descendant would one day rule an everlasting kingdom. But in light of David's sin, what's God going to do now? Who would be that person? Who would be the first installment? Who would build this house, this everlasting kingdom for God? And the next thing you know, we're going to find out in the next chapter, it's Solomon. Answer is Solomon, who God loves Remember about the lesson. God can use any defeat, any failure, and turn it to good. Any failure. No matter who you are, no matter what we've done, what God can do and what God actually does goes beyond uh, human wisdom and comprehension. It's nothing less than miraculous grace. That God makes it work. Nothing's going to stop the plan of God from working. Your failures, my failures, David's failures, no one's failures can stop God. It's a huge lesson to the Jew that someone greater than David is coming. They were waiting for a king. They thought David was the man. They found out that David was just another man like the rest of us. We all fail. David failed God, David failed his sheep, but God never fails his people. And that's an important lesson. So let's go into our text. Let's start in 2 Samuel, the first verse, chapter 11. I'm going to break it down. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab instead of going himself with Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Ramah, but David remained at Jerusalem. This verse sets the stage, the whole stage, for what is going to transpire in the next two chapters. This campaign of war usually starts, uh, as many others in First and Second Samuel, it's two books of warfare, always starts the leader going out before the people. David always went out before the people. That was the king's rightful position, is to go out, represent God, going out before the people. Uh, but we find something here, David is delinquent in his duty. 
He's not doing what he's supposed to do. It all seems innocent. But a close look reveals something very ominous. And it's all found in one word. The word sent. Sent in the chapters 10, 11, and 12. These warfare chapters. If you read them. This word sent is a very significant word. And what it actually means in the Hebrew is a royal fiat. Meaning the king speaks and no one can question his authority. It's sort of like what the president does when he writes uh, an executive privilege. You, You cannot stop it. You cannot stop King David from saying, send me. When the king would say send or send, it had to be done no questions whatsoever. It was a royal privilege. It was the king's rightful place. It was his authority to do so. And in times of war, it was needed. But unfortunately, it's soon going to be reused for the wrong manner. In this power to send people to go one direction or call people back into another direction is going to become spiritual abuse. And the abuse of power by a leader is what we're looking at today in our text. With all the devastating effects. Let every leader who leads anyone be careful of the authority God has given us. 2 Samuel 2-5. to It happened. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent, there's the word, didn't ask any questions. No one can question David. With all his authority, he sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's why she was bathing. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The scene before us is narrated by a third party, and I don't want you to miss it. And he's drawing us into the picture. He's drawn us into this narrative, into this storyline. With these words, it happened. We would say something once upon. So he's narrating this thing. It happened. Almost the unthinkable happened. And it happened on a late one afternoon. David, a man known as a man after God's own heart, a king to be envied, a king to be admired, a man who fought valiantly, even as a child, against Goliath. He was a soldier's soldier, and the man never knew defeat. Little did he know he was going to have the toughest fight of his life. That one afternoon after waking up from the couch, this man was going to have to fight the lust of his own heart and he didn't ask God to come Mm -hmm. learn this lesson when you're fighting anything in the heart God has to be in the equation or we shall lose you can lose you could be losing right now there'd be something going on in your life that no one knows about you're keeping it to yourself David kept it to himself it was the end he asked no one for help this is a mighty man 
He was just taken down by a beautiful woman. This man never knew defeat. Going in for the toughest life, the toughest fight of his life was within himself. He has decided to fight his own weakness by himself. Please, if you struggle, do not fight the flesh on your own. All seems innocent. As he walks on the rooftop, after waking from a siesta on a hot afternoon, this is the springtime, Palestine, it's brutally hot. There is no wind, there is no air conditioner, there is no ice, there is no cool running water, it's just nothing but hot. And there he is, he's walking on top of his roof, he looks to the left and what does he see? A beautiful woman bathing in her nakedness. The woman is very beautiful. The word here in Hebrew is only used four times in scripture. And it's always used to bring our attention to some extraordinary appearance by someone. It's used of Rebecca. It's used of Bathsheba. It's used of someone else. And the fourth person is actually used of David himself. David was a really extraordinary handsome man. There was nothing this man lacked. This remarkable woman is sent for. David feels like he has the power just to order someone to inquire of this woman. No one can question the king. He uses his royal privilege to send in the wrong way. When the information comes back, the messenger comes back, he relates all that he's found. And surely David's desire will end here. This is your friend. This is your friend's son's daughter. There's a man named Epiphanel, and it was David's counselor. He was a sage. He was a man that counseled David many, many times. This girl is his granddaughter. The husband, Uriah, is David's friend. This is unthinkable. These are two men that have served David faithfully. He sends to inquire. The information comes back. He's left with, what am I going to do? I'm lusting in my heart. I have to have the forbidden fruit. And it's my friend's wife and my other friend's granddaughter. You would think it's over. The story would end here, wouldn't it? It's not. Unfortunately, it gets worse. What's really bad about this, this time of reflection, this time of considering, who's the woman? Who's this woman I desire so much? He has to make a decision. This Pastor John's been preaching out of James. This is James 1, 14 and 15. He had time not to covet. His first mistake, he coveted his neighbor's wife. Listen to James. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Here's the David. There's no one else. Satan's not there. It's just David and his own desire. That's it. God's not in the equation. No counselors are in the equation. No other believers are in the equation. He shares his thoughts with no one but himself. He's taking matters into his own hands. 
Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's David going to do? He sends again, this time, to take that which he does not own. David's overcome with desire. His desire gives birth to sin in the heart. His will is a slave to his passions. The only thing next is to seal the deal. The parenthesis about her uncleanness serves two purposes. When Bathsheba does have a child, you can rest assured it was David's because she had no sex prior to her period before that. So she was not pregnant before this being accosted by David. The David's child, not Uriah's. Number two, and I don't want you to miss this, it clarifies what Bathsheba had told David. It's silent here, but you have to listen. She's basically saying, David, please no. This is a risky time to have sex. I'm telling you, David, I cannot go through with this. Please, David, whatever you do, do not do this thing. How consensual was this is very, very doubtful. With the overuse of the word send, and in light of who she was, she was a friend twice over, David raped Bathsheba. Make no mistake about it. Please, make no mistake about it. This man raped this woman. And then the text says, she went to her house. How anticlimactic this statement is. It captures the abject emptiness of the crime scene. It was totally unfulfilling which sex outside God's sacred design usually is. David must have felt absolutely disgusting. Dirty. Unclean. And unworthy. But right now he's more afraid of getting caught than getting right with God. Another unthinkable thing happens now. Watch the trajectory. And please, there's not a person in this room that has not fallen into this. Maybe not in a sexual kind, but everybody knows how the best they can to cover up their crimes and their lies. That's what sinners do. And now the cover-up starts. Listen to verses 6 to 10. I'll paraphrase once in a while to try to get to the point. Try to make a point. 
So David, in a panic, sent word to Joab. Send me, send me, hurry up. Uriah the Hittite. Don't waste any time. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to David, David asked Joab, a couple of preliminaries, uh, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, like he really cared. And how the war was going on. He's got one thing on his mind. He's got to get this man to sleep with his wife. That's the only thing he can come up with. He goes through some preliminaries. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's a Hebrew idiom for go home and make love to your wife. And Uriah went down to the king's house, not his own house. And there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his own house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, David, are you kidding me? The ark of God? Israel and Judah dwell in boots, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field? Are you crazy, David? Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie at my wife? I would never do such a thing like that. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I've made a vow to God. I'm a soldier. And at times of war, we don't have sex. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow and I'll send you back. You can see David, his mind must be going now. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him. He goes to plan two now. Plan one didn't work. And he ate and drank in his presence and got him drunk. Nice guy. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his own house. David is in a desperate mode now. Now he goes up into cover up mode. Surely Uriah will sleep with his wife after being away so long, right? What man could possibly stay away from such a beautiful woman? David couldn't. David is in for one rude awakening. When questioned on why he didn't, David was not ready for Uriah's rebuke. Uriah rebuked David not with words, but with his own character. David was going toe-to-toe with a more godly character than himself. David used to be a man sold out for God, and now he's not. Uriah is. And David knows it. David has met his match. But David tries one more scheme. Let's get him drunk. Yeah, that will do it. But no, it did not. David's schemes proved too weak for Uriah's strong, godly convictions. David is in his deepest desperation now. He has no other recourse. Since God is not in the equation, David will resort to murder. Just as James says, when sin conceives, it's in the heart. Now it just needs to act. The consequences will prove too much for David to handle. 
Listen to verses 14 to 19. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Sent. Again. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. Joab's got to be saying, what's going on here? That he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if he king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know once... Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jehoboset? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tabiz? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell him. The messenger sent to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah Hittite is also dead. So David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. Covering it up again. You too... For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. This is how callous David became. It was basically, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, bury the guy and get out of there. You cannot become more. David is at a callous place in his heart. This is absolutely brutal. This is a man that loved God. To watch the trajectory into the toilet bowl of David is brutal for anybody. And it's a real cautionary tale. It can happen to anyone. Once the schemes and the lies start, once the sin takes over, there's a a pattern in the mind that tries to cover up, tries to fix it without anybody knowing about it. David could have said, God, forgive me for covetousness. He didn't. God, forgive me for adultery. He didn't. But eventually he's going to have to ask God to forgive him of everything. With the wheels in motion to remove Uriah from the equation... David again abuses his right of royal power and sends a letter that cannot be questioned or read by Uriah about his own death. Just think about David handing the letter to Uriah. It was a death sentence. It's a death sentence. David has totally abused his authority in the worst way. It's getting worse. From covetousness to adultery to one plot to another plot. Now murder. Now David finds an accomplice in his nephew Joab, if you didn't know that. Joab, the commander, was actually David's nephew. Joab's conscience is troubling him, though, but not enough to stop the carnage. He goes through the process. He knows it looks bad to everyone, especially King David. 
This looks like a rookie mistake by this commander-in-chief. So he gives a disclaimer. Oh, Uriah the Hittite is also dead. That was like a covert way of saying, David, don't get mad at me. You're the one who wanted the guy dead. And this is the only way I can do it. I know we, we lost a man many years ago named Abimelech because we got too close to the wall. We know you never get close to the wall. But the only way I can fulfill your plan to kill your friend is to send him close to the wall. Don't get mad at me. That's what that whole thing was about. The messenger was going back and forth. David said the messenger, tell Joab, don't fret the thing. Joab is telling the messenger, when he told David, don't forget to tell him Uriah died too. Let's get this straight. I don't want him mad at me. Listen to the conspiracy. That's what sin does. Let me tell you something. When leaders fall into all sorts of sins, you have to have people who conspire with you. Because you cannot hold back the information. I've seen it firsthand. We've seen things done and saying you don't do these things in the Christian church. You do not sweep things under the carpet. You bring things out to the light. You repent. You ask God for forgiveness. And you move on your way. But the shame was just too much for David. It's brutal. Absolutely brutal. Verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. There was a season of crying, wailing, lamenting. David had to witness the early effects of his sin. It was bad enough that Uriah died somewhere out there in the battlefield far from Jerusalem. And, and innocent people, other soldiers died around him. It wasn't just Uriah. Joab took it upon himself to send other men up there too. I'll cover David's stain. I'll cover David's mistake. I'll cover David's. I'll send 20 men up there. Let them all get killed so no one noticed it was just Uriah. Now David sees the early effects of his sin. First and foremost, he looks at Bathsheba wailing. He took the wife of Uriah. Then he took the husband from Bathsheba. He killed both of them. This was the flock in his care. This is unthinkable. The king is there to shepherd the people not to abuse them he took the wife from Uriah his only wife he loved his wife chapter 12 tells us that he took her he took royal privilege he abused his authority he did not care he saw her nakedness and he wanted what he wanted what he wanted and even God wasn't going to get in the way And then he takes the husband away from the wife. How can you live with yourself? Sin always hurts innocent people. Don't ever forget that, man. Sin always, these kind of sins always hurt innocent people. Listen to verse 27. And when the morning was over, 
David sent again and brought her to a house. She, had, she couldn't say no. This is his divine privilege. He's abusing his authority. He sent again and says, bring me. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David again exercises a royal fiat. He sent and brought. Nowhere in this chapter is Bathsheba at fault. The only thing she says in the whole thing, I am pregnant. I told you, David, don't do this thing. I'm pregnant now. The very thing I told you came to pass, David. I'm pregnant, and I can't blame my husband. You're the man. You can fool men, but you can't fool God. You can get away with a scheme, and you can get away with sin so long, but the prophet, the, t- the, the scriptures teach us, your sin shall find yeah. no matter what. Sooner or later, it's going to catch up to you, and it will be the demise of you. David's life and ministry was never the same again. The only thing is he was saved, and God still used him. But he was, he was a shell of a man. A shell of a man. Saw a guy about six months ago, I knew years ago, strapping guy in the gym, had it all together, handsome, good looking, money, everything. I saw him a little while ago, devastated by drugs. He's a shell of a man. He lost his wife, he lost this, he lost his business, he's got nothing, begging for money. And I was like, what happened? And it wasn't the exact story, but guess what? The principles are all the same. You touch forbidden fruit. You try to cover it up. You try to cover up the cover up. That doesn't work. You go to another level. You go, And before you know it, you're a shell of a human being. David is being tortured in his own mind. You can fool God. You can fool men, but you can't fool God. God saw the whole thing. And you would think, well, that's the end of the story. But it's really not. Because... This is one year in the making. And we're going to close with Psalm 32. I want you to read a couple of verses of scripture in Psalm 32. God will never be mocked, even by people he loves. I can't make God, I can't mock God, you can't get, you, we take things into our own hand, God's going to get us. Listen to Psalm 32, 1 to 4. Listen to what happened to David for one full year of his life. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who count, the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. But now listen to three and four. For when I kept silent that whole year, after I raped Bathsheba, after I killed her husband, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. Selah, think about these things. Meditate on these things. I'll speak about a little more about this next week and when we get into actual Psalm 51. But for that long year, David was a man 
psychosomatic because of guilt, and that's what guilt does. If you are a Christian and you're living in sin, guilt will kill you. It will kill me. You are not going to get away with it. You have a God who will be displeased. David had all the authority to do whatever he wanted, but he couldn't pull the wool over God's eyes. God has the last word always. No one gets away with anything. Please take comfort in that and be afraid. God sees everything. And for that whole year, when the kingdom was tiptoeing around David, he was a man mad by his remorse. He, he absolutely loathes himself. He has not offered any sacrifice. He has offered no praise to God. He has led no battles. He's a sickly old man being disciplined by God. Up until that point, David still thinks no one knows but Joab, his nephew. But God knew. And God disciplined him. We'll pick up the rest of this next week because God's goodness is not finished in David's life. Again, God's goodness is not finished in David's life. And all God's people should be saying, Amen. Because, please, we might not fall into the sin that David did, but understand something. All sin is heinous to God. It's all sin. And God is dead serious about this. David, for a whole year, was being disciplined by the hand of God. It was a brutal existence. Not to be desired by anyone. David became a shell of the man, and when the leader suffers, so does the kingdom. Psalm 51 brings that out. When I get there, I'll bring it out how the kingdom suffered. When leaders sin, the kingdom suffers. His conscience is as hard as a rock now. He's a zombie. An absolute zombie. He's king, yes. But pleasing God? No more. David does not please God. Applications, and we'll close. Abuse of power. David would have been a a, a front and center of the Me Too movement. Abuse of power in any way, but especially in sexual ways, is an absolute brutal thing. It happens all the time. And I'm just going to keep it to clergy. It happens way too much. And before Protestants throw any kind of stones at the Roman Catholic Church and their cover-ups, understand something. It's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Precautions need to be taken at all times. Transparency at all times. It's the only antidote. David loved God. But even that wasn't good enough. When you come to fighting the flesh, you have to have things in order. You have to have a strategy of accountability. And I'm just talking about leaders. And if you're a husband and you're married and you want to keep pure with your wife or your wife, you want to keep pure with your husband, you have accountability through friendship. You have friendships that me and John know each other. My wife knows me. Uh, We have to have a strategy of accountability and transparency because Satan always goes after the shepherd of the flock. Because if you smite the shepherd, 
the flock will scatter. So if Satan wants to do something bad here, guess who he's going after? Going after me. And I take these stories very serious because I'm just a human being, just like David. I got eyes, I got to be careful because it happened one day. Just like I love the way... And it happened one day. It doesn't say, and David left himself wide open. No. It happened one day. He was just taking a walk. He woke up from a siesta. He's tired. It's hot. But boom, his eyes are full. It drives him mad. He was not prepared for the greatest fight of his life. Cover-ups, number two. There were a dime a dozen. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Sin, a guilty conscience always looks to cover up its sin. Always. Please, if you're a Christian, this is what you do with your sin. Jesus, forgive me. Right now I need you, God. Put me right. Get me right. Right away before it gets any worse, God. Help me to open up my mouth. David should have said, I need help. Send me Nathan the prophet. I need to confess my sin. He didn't. And people go to church and you'll sit here and you'll be like, you'll hear this story. You'll say, I'll never do something like that. But there's probably things in people's lives right now that you don't want to tell anybody. Because you just want it to go away. David just wanted it to go away. Guess what? It doesn't just go. It needs to be atoned for. And it's not atoned for until you go to Christ and get right with God. He makes atonement. Your conscience is clean. And you can feel like you're part of life again. And you're part of the community of faith. That's why we have 1 John chapter 1. If any man says he has not sinned, he deceives himself. And he does not have fellowship with us. Sitting at church doesn't mean you have fellowship with God. Sitting at church doesn't mean you have fellowship with the believers. No, not if there's sin in the heart. If sin is not taken care of, you're saying, this is why you don't watch. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hey, Pastor. God bless you. God bless you, Lori. It's all fake. It's fake. It's fake worship. It's fake fellowship. It's not the kind of fellowship that just breaks your heart and you love God so much. No. Cover-ups. Be careful. Number three. Each person. We all need to know our personal weaknesses in our life. I'm telling you right now. We have to be on our guard at all times. I am so grateful for my wife and the relationship I have with my wife uh, and other men in my life, but my wife knows everything. I was speaking one day. There's a couple of men that were at this. I was teaching the men's group, and I was talking about how God delivered me from lust and all that good stuff. And as I'm saying it, I'm teaching over 15 years at that time. Who comes walking down the aisle in the middle of the story? My wife. She needed keys, and she, I had the keys, and, and all the guys were looking like, they're looking at her, they're looking at me. I'm still, I didn't stop the story. They're looking at Terry, they're looking at me, they're looking at Terry. I said, oh, Terry, would you sit down? You've heard this one before. <laughs> because I don't want to end up like David. I love God, I love you, and I love my wife. But I'm a man. And you got to set up accountability. I know where we can be weak. You have to have good, rock-solid people in your life. 
God was displeased. Remember, God will never be mocked. And sin always gives us up sooner or later. God always has the last word. So if you think someone's getting away with something because you heard something about someone, no one gets away with anything. If you are a Christian, please understand, God will make life absolutely miserable for you until you cry out I can't take it it's like my bones are crushed on the inside oh God and I'll close with this one thing there's one hero in the whole story Uriah the Hittite the man was a man of deep convictions and he actually died at the hands of a king I mean come on understand something Uriah goes down in the books as a man after God's own heart. Father, we love you. Help us, Father God, to understand how this great man, Father God, fell into such atrocities, God, then try to cover it up, yes, even with murder, Father God. But the next part of the story in chapter 12 is your restoration of your people, God. I pray that everybody go home this week and read chapter 12 and Psalm 51, that they realize just how awesome you really are. How frail we are as people but how incredible our God in heaven is. In Jesus' name, amen.